I'm going to invite Patty up. She's coming to preach, and I wanted to just say one. I'm so grateful, one, just for Patty, and uh, she's been a great encouragement to me. And one of the things that I just appreciate about having her in our congregation is I think that there's a diversity of voices or different voices who have different perspectives that can sort of come at the scriptures in different ways. And somebody who has so much pastoral care and experience certainly has something to offer to our congregation in these days. So grateful for your preaching. And I'm at, this is my first time I think I've heard you preach. So I'm ready to go. So I need to sit down so you can do that. I love this season of the year. As any of you who have known me for longer than 10 minutes probably already know. And I appreciate that music we had today. Love the Christmas carols. I don't know about you, but I've already been listening to them since November 1st. That's when the, the holiday station came on Sirius Radio. So ever since then, I've been listening to Christmas music. Love the decorations, love the smells of Christmas, and especially I love the chance that we get in this Advent season to intentionally prepare our hearts and our lives for Jesus' coming. And so I'm delighted to share God's word during this particular season. And I have loved the Advent messages so far that our pastor is, has preached. He is an excellent preacher. I'm not sure really how he managed to get so good so young, but maybe it's a God thing, you know. But I know that you know just how blessed we are to have him leading us and teaching us. ever noticed that secular history and current events tend to leave us with the idea that Caesars and kings and presidents and dictators are the ones who shape the world? <laughs> anything important, anything newsworthy revolves around powerful figures who capture the front page headlines and blow up Twitter and Facebook. And if it isn't on Fox or CNN or NBC, it doesn't matter in the slightest, does it? And that's not really a new phenomenon. In the year 1809, newspapers, even here in the US, were full, just dominated by stories of Napoleon as he was making his military sweep through Europe. International attention was so focused on Napoleon and his empire that he was forging that little else was deemed as very newsworthy in the world that year. It was as if Napoleon alone was shaping the destiny of the world. But in reality, an interesting thing the world's future was actually being shaped in the cradles of the world. In that year, 1809, the legendary U.S. Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes was born. Abolitionist Amy Matilda Casey was born. Author Edgar Allan Poe was born along with a number of dozens, in fact, of other significant writers and philanthropists and artists and educators of the 19th century, even Kit Carson, the adventurer. Charles Dar Darwin, 
who would turn the scientific and theological worlds upside down, was born that year, along with several important inventors and scientists of the Industrial Revolution. And in a log cabin in rural Hardin County, Kentucky, a little baby by the name of Abraham Lincoln was born. And at the time, all those babies' births meant nothing in the eyes of the world. The world was watching Napoleon. But six years later, just six years later, Napoleon met his Waterloo, and within 50 years, the headlines about his great empire were a distant memory. While those babies born in 1809 were shaping the world. I think the reality is we, we don't pay much attention to the babies born every day, do we? With 250 babies being born every minute, minute in our world today, the birth of one individual baby doesn't even generate a blip on the radar, does it? Except within their own family, or maybe if they're heir to the British throne. <laughs> because the truth is, everyday events of life only seem to matter in the lives of the rich and famous, in the politically important, the celebrities, the movers and shakers of the world. Nobody cares about the lives or the babies being born to Joe the plumber and Mary the grocery clerk. And that was just as true 2,000 years ago. Nobody cared about a cute, blonde, curly-headed baby in a nice sanitary stable, surrounded by clean, wide-eyed, quiet animals. Isn't that what's on your Christmas cards? <laughs> More likely, that little brown baby was born in a dark, stinky place with smelly, stomping, snorting animals and manure. Lots of manure. But who wants that kind of realism on our Christmas cards? <laughs> Here's your freebie. This is, this is your freebie for the day. This is my favorite, my new favorite nativity scene liberated Joseph. You got him up there? Yeah. Don't you love that? <laughs> A man way ahead of his time. <laughs> but whatever the manger scene looked like, nobody important cared about the baby being born in Bethlehem that year. All the real news was being made in Rome or Greece or Jerusalem. The world was abuzz with headlines about Caesar Augustus's huge worldwide census that he demanded so he could raise taxes. Babies of all people didn't matter at a time like that. But what most of the world missed that year was the birth of a baby who was so much more than just an infant wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. You see, the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes was the great creator God of the universe himself, 
who became flesh and blood, just like us, made his dwelling among us. Or I like the way the message version puts John 1.14, he moved right into the neighborhood. <laughs> Our neighborhood. Our world. Planet Earth. And it was no small move. The move into our neighborhood meant he left heaven itself with all its beauty and splendor, angels worshiping and praising, and all of heaven focused on him. A place with no evil, no heartache, no injustice, no hurts, no sickness, no death. Just joy and celebrating and goodness and righteousness, health and happiness all the time. Sounds good, doesn't it? And what was his new neighborhood like that he moved into when he left heaven and made that move to earth? Well, it was definitely not the palace of a king, not Trump Tower, not the Taj Mahal, but a stable. It was not into wealth, but into poverty and loneliness and rejection and alienation, betrayal, even by his family and friends. You might think of it in terms of moving out of the White House or Buckingham Palace and into somebody's garage in the hood. <laughs> he moved into a world wrecked by sin where the strong took advantage of the weak and, the, and there was immorality and violence, a place of brokenness, broken lives, broken families, broken relationships, broken governments, a place of deceit and chaos and corruption where it seemed like things just couldn't get any worse. Sound at all familiar? This season of Advent is about preparing our hearts and our minds and our lives for the coming of this one who so willingly left heaven itself to move into our neighborhood out of love for us. And for, <clears throat> pardon me, for hundreds <clears throat> of years before Jesus was born, God had been sending prophets into the world to prepare people's hearts for his coming into the world. And this morning, we, all of us, are going to be those prophets, you and I, and we're going to announce the coming of the Lord together. You have an insert in your bulletin that has a ver have some verses printed in a color, in colored ink. Take it out and hold it up. Okay, y'all got them? Okay. I would invite those people whose scriptures is printed in green ink to please stand right where you are. And we are going to be the prophet Isaiah and declare the word of the Lord this morning. So read with me. This prophecy, 
Your God is coming to save you. And when he comes, he will open the eyes of the blind and unplug the ears of the deaf. The lame will leap like a deer, and those who cannot speak will sing for joy. And that's what God does when he moves into the neighborhood. Thank you. You can be seated. All those who have purple, and purple's hard to tell. You might think it's gray or black, but if you have purple print... Stand with me. And let's read together these words from, the, from David, the psalmist. Read with me. He gives justice to the oppressed and food to the hungry. The Lord frees the prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are weighed down. He protects the foreigners among us. He cares for the orphans and widows, but he frustrates the plans of the wicked. Thank you. And that's what the neighborhood begins to look like when the kingdom of God breaks in. Those with blue, now you've got the, you've got the idea here. So all those with blue scriptures... Let's proclaim the coming of the Lord together again from Isaiah. Read with me. Look at my servant, my chosen one, who pleases me. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or raise his voice. He will not crush the weakest reed or put out a flickering candle. He will bring justice to all who have been wronged, free the captives from prison, releasing those who sit in dark dungeons. Thank you. And finally, those whose scripture is printed in red, it's your turn to stand. And let's read together the word of the Lord. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. For the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. Thank you to all of you. You have very prophetic voices. Wow. After all those prophecies, God's people must have had a pretty good idea of what the Messiah and his kingdom would look like when he came, wouldn't you think? And yet, then, just like now, people had their own ideas of what they thought a Messiah, a savior of the world, uh, God on earth, what they thought he should look like. <laughs> Some thought he would be a scorching preacher who would, just like Elijah, who would sweep through Israel, spewing moral outrage. Many envisioned a powerful and invincible ruler who would topple Herod from the throne and set himself up as the king of the Jews, who would bring glory and acclaim back to the Jewish people, who would 
make Israel great and mighty again, like in the days of David. They certainly did not expect someone who would go around befriending tax collectors and sinners, hanging out with the least, the last, the lost, the little, the lonely, the losers. And they definitely did not want someone who was going to be gentle and kind, who advocated turning the other cheek, who valued women and children and outsiders, nor did they expect that he would call uneducated, ordinary fishermen and farmers to follow him and become the missionaries and ministers who would change the world. So is this humble, gentle, compassionate Jesus really the powerful one that they had been waiting for, hoping for all these centuries? Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. It's page 1018 if you're using the Bible there in the book rack, and that's the translation we're going to read from this morning. And while you're finding it, let me give you a little bit of backstory on what's happening here. Herod has taken exception to John the Baptist's fiery preaching, which included broadcasting to all who would listen that Herod wasn't the real king of Israel, which he wasn't, and that God's kingdom and his king were on the way, which they were. And Herod was especially furious over John's public condemnation of his immorality and his corruption. Now, obviously, those are gutsy kinds of things to say publicly about any leader. <laughs> but this king, Herod Antipas, was the son of Herod the Great, the one who had massacred all the babies when Jesus was born, and who had later assassinated some of his own sons. These Herods did not react well to opposition. And so, like many of the prophets before him, John the Baptist has landed himself in prison, where he's no doubt eagerly looking forward to the day when Jesus will declare himself the Messiah and oust Herod from the Jewish throne, take his place as the king. But it's looking less and less like that's going to happen. And so John, in prison, sends messengers to Jesus with a question. Chapter 11, Matthew, chapter 11, verse 2. John the Baptist was in prison, but he heard about what the Christ was doing. So John sent some of his followers to Jesus. They asked him, are you the one who is to come, or should we wait for someone else? Jesus answered them, Go tell John what you see and hear. The blind can see, the crippled walk, people with skin diseases or leprosy are healed, the deaf can hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. Those who do not stumble in their faith because of me, because of these things that I say and I do, are blessed. As John's followers were leaving, Jesus began to talk to the people about John. 
Jesus said, what did you go out into the desert to see? A reed blown by the wind? What did you go out in the desert to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear fine clothes live in king's palaces. So why did you go out? To see a prophet? Yes. And I tell you, John is more than just a prophet. This was written about him. I will send my messenger ahead of you, ahead of the Messiah, who will prepare the way. Lord, give us open ears and open minds, open hearts, to hear and understand what you want to say to us through your word this morning. Amen. John was obviously confused, maybe a little disappointed. Jesus wasn't doing what he expected him to do, <laughs> or acting in ways that anybody thought a Messiah should act. And so here's John in prison after having spent his entire adult life being God's prophet out in the desert, eating grasshoppers and wearing burlap, calling people to repent, shouting dire warnings at the Pharisees and the rulers, whom he called a brood of vipers, that's snakes in the grass, and having given up the comforts of a home, risking his life, for what? To prepare the way for a Messiah that he had expected would call down fire from heaven like Elijah, who would declare judgment and condemnation on his enemies. And now, here's Jesus, not sticking to John's script. And John begins to wonder, have I gotten it all wrong? Is Jesus not really the one? How is John supposed to know? How can we know? How can we recognize God among us? What does God walking around in our skin, our shoes, our neighborhood look like? Besides the familiar baby in a manger. How was John supposed to know that God's kingdom had come? How can we know that God's kingdom is among us today? So Jesus says to, God, to John's followers, go back and tell John what you're seeing and what you're hearing. Tell him that the signs of God's kingdom, all those things that the prophets said would happen when the Messiah comes, are happening. All those things that those prophets for hundreds of years had been saying would happen, were happening. And what was it the prophets said would happen when God's Messiah comes? The very things that we read, stood and read just a moment ago. Feeding the hungry, reaching out to other people. Wherever you see these things happening among you, Jesus says, you'll know that I and my kingdom 
are present. That my kingdom is breaking in to the world. There's a wonderful theological word that we don't often hear, usually just around Christmas time, and I know you just love to hear theological words, but this is a good one. And when we do hear it, we may not really have a very good idea of what it means, but the word is incarnation. Literally, the word means in the flesh, or to be embodied in human form. In theology, it specifically means God becoming human as Jesus Christ, both entirely God and entirely human. Jesus is the incarnation of God. He is what God looks like walking around in our neighborhood. And rather astonishingly, this word incarnation can also refer to us embodying some trait or some idea. For instance, we might say that Susan is the incarnation of gentleness. She embodies gentleness in her life in a way that we understand and know what gentleness is just by looking at Susan. But I think it's also important to understand that incarnation also describes God sending us into the neighborhood to be the visible image of Jesus, the incarnation in our world of Jesus himself, to embody, to personify what Jesus looks like in common, ordinary, everyday life. We, the church, the church are the embodiment of Christ in the world. We are his presence. That's what it means to be the church. So what does Jesus look like when he's embodied in us as we walk around in our neighborhood? How can people recognize God's kingdom in the world today? Well, take a look at your sheets in your bulletin again. What does it say? Justice, freeing the prisoners, feeding the hungry, reaching out to those who were weighed down by life, protecting foreigners, caring for orphans and widows, and on and on. Do we live in a different world than the Old Testament prophets or John the Baptist when they wrote and preached these things? Absolutely. So are these things written by the prophets and taught by Jesus now out of date and obsolete? Not at all. Oh, sure, circumstances and customs change from age to age and culture to culture, but the values and goals and attitudes of Jesus' kingdom stay the same. Feed the hungry, care for the helpless, protect the vulnerable, lift up those who are weighed down by life, and always, always act with gentleness and kindness and peace, never crushing 
the weakest reed or snuffing out a flickering candle. I think that's a great, love that language. Never crushing the weakest reed. Sometimes we do without even thinking about it. Crush weak, other weak reeds around us, don't we? Now, who the vulnerable and the brokenhearted are and how we protect or comfort them does change from time to time and place to place, culture to culture. But the fact that those things are what God's kingdom is about does not change. They are always the signs that his kingdom is present. One of my favorite theologians, Tom Wright, says mercy is in the, at the very heart of Jesus' mission. Just as it remains at the heart of the church's work today. Whether or not that's the script people want us to follow, that's the way we've got to go. And Jesus invokes a special blessing on people who realize that this is the true story. This is where and how God is at work. Those who recognize it and who are not offended, who do not stumble in their faith, verse 6 says, who are not offended because they were expecting something else, a different Messiah, a, a different kind of kingdom, they will know God's blessing. We will be blessed if we are not put off by the way Jesus says his kingdom works. Now that's pretty hard, isn't it? Not to be put off by those things. Not to wonder, how does that work? That doesn't make sense. I read this week in Christianity Today uh, an incredible story that I can think can only be called a miracle of heart and attitude. And I know some of you are going to think it's crazy. <laughs> and some are going to say, wow, that's totally a totally unrealistic and even dangerous way to live. And it is. <laughs> but I think it's such a clear illustration of the way Jesus calls his people to live that I'm going to chance it and share it with you. There have been a terrible rash of killings and persecutions in West Africa places like Burkina Faso and Senegal and Sierra Leone in recent months, and it's included both Catholics and Protestants, all Christian churches. And thousands, literally thousands and thousands of Christians have had to flee their homes, taking nothing with them in order to escape the terror. And just a couple of weeks ago, another small church was attacked, and 14 men and boys as young as 10 were forced out of the church and executed. And this is not an unusual happening over these past months. But these words about how to live like Jesus are from a church leader in that church who says Christians are being drawn closer together than ever before. 
because we face the same attacks, the same threats, the same hardships. Once again, our values of tolerance, forgiveness, and love were violated. The freedom of worship enshrined in our basic law has been trampled on. However, there is no need for the churches here to be fearful. Wow. Or to be angry, nor to complain. We continue to pray and would like Christians around the world to join us in prayer. Just pray that the Lord, the Prince of Peace, rescues Burkina Faso from terrorism, from threat and fear. The Lord will give us victory over those who oppress us. We are telling our church members, he said, that prayer is our only weapon. Church members need to be cautious, but there is no self-defense. It is in the love of God and the love of our neighbor, in unity and solidarity, by ridding ourselves of all the spirit of fear and revenge that we will eventually overcome. And then he goes on to say, as Christmas approaches, our hearts beat to welcome the Prince of Peace who comes to make peace first between people and God and then between the people themselves so that all people can say together, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those whom God is, with whom God is pleased. Wow. <laughs> our only weapons are to be prayer and love of God and love of nature, of neighbor, well, nature too, but neighbor. <laughs> How's that for a truly unrealistic and dangerous way to live? Sort of like lambs and goats and children playing in the midst of lions and tigers and cobras. The people who don't stumble over this way of life that Jesus calls us to. Those who are not cynical or defensive about this being what Christ-likeness looks like. As we live in the neighborhood, Jesus says, these folks are blessed. <laughs> these are my people, my kingdom. And I don't know about you, but I really want to be one of those kind of people. And I am so, so far from being that kind of person. You want to know if the kingdom of God has come, Jesus says? Look around. What do you see happening? Wherever you see less hate and a little more forgiveness, God's kingdom is breaking in. Wherever you see a little less resentment and a little more acceptance, a little less violence and a little more compassion, a little less apathy and a lot more caring for the sick and the needy and the hurting and the weak, wherever you see those things happening, you'll know, Jesus says, that God is in the neighborhood, <laughs> that his kingdom is breaking into our world. A favorite Christmas season quote of mine is from Rachel Held Evans, 
who writes, because this ragamuffin crew of peasants dreamed the dreams of the prophets, they knew what to look for, what to bet on. They recognized Emmanuel, God with us. In the pregnancy of a Palestinian teenager, among a persecuted minority, suffering under an oppressive empire, amidst the darkness of the slaughter of infants. In the company of shepherds and strangers, and in the vulnerability of a baby's cries, even when the most powerful and religious among them missed it, they saw, they knew, they recognized that Jesus is the embodiment of all of God's best dreams for the world. Jesus is the, embodies all the best dreams of God for the world. I wonder, do you think we could dream the dreams of the prophets this Advent and Christmas season? <laughs> Will we recognize where God's kingdom is breaking into the world and not stumble over the fact that it's so strange and so out of step with what our world believes? The bottom line of Christmas, the point of the Christmas story is that God became like us, moved into our neighborhood so that we can become like him as we live in our neighborhood, so that we can become like him in our ordinary, everyday, eating, sleeping, going to work, walking around lives in the neighborhood. Lord, give us open eyes today to recognize your kingdom and hearts to follow where you are going, even as we go out of this place today and into our neighborhoods this week. Amen. Church, as you go about your lives this week and as you follow Jesus, may you be the ones that embody God's best dreams for the world. Embody his love and hope and joy and peace. Go in his grace. Amen.